It's February 22nd, 2021. This is Rook. He's like a Persian superstar dream kid, an acclaimed doctor and engineer, with all the educational boxes checked off. But Dr. Abbas Abdahali is a lot more than his occupation. He's an Iranian-American who's the first surgeon in the United States to perform a breathing lung transplant, a new procedure and possibility that he helped invent. He is the award-winning surgical director of UCLA's heart-lung transplant programs and a professor of surgery and medicine at the UCLA School of Medicine. Dr. Abbas Abdahali. Ali joins us for a feature interview today, plus Mona from Melbourne with your Persian proverb of the week, and we have your letters. This is Conversations From, To, and About the Iranian Diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode number 87 of Rook, coming to you from snowy Canada and envying those of you in warm places listening around the world. Welcome, we are on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity coming to you on SoundCloud, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, that's iTunes, Instagram, YouTube, CastBox, and Telegram. Hello, fabulous Keon. Hi, Gian. Hello. How are you? I'm, thank <laughs> Sup? you. Thank you. Sup? Uh, hello. Hello, Groovy Shia. Hi, Gian. Mm, hello. <laughs> and hello, Captain Reza. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. Uh, listen, uh, our featured guest today is just so impressive. He, he is one of those folks that we should... Um, I think we should be really proud of in our diaspora. Dr. Abbas Ardahali, he's the surgical director of UCLA's heart, lung, and heart, lung transplant programs. So heart, comma, lung, comma, and heart, lung. Wow. The lungs weren't enough? Well, you, yeah, you have to say it twice. He's so impressed. Uh, he, he's the man who was behind the invention of the breathing lung and heart transplant. He was also the first surgeon in the United States to perform a breathing lung transplant. Do you know what that means, Keon? Uh, I have an idea. It's no. like to get a lung breathing, essentially, before you transplant it into a body. Is that what yes. you mean? Yes, well done, yes. Keon. Yes, thank you. But why is that different? What is that? Do you know it's, why that's different? It's functioning. Like it's, uh, like it's, how do we? Right, so mean? traditionally, when they want to, I mean, I'm talking as if I'm an authority. <laughs> I just learned now. this because I was <laughs> researching him, right? But but traditionally, they transplant, when they transplant hearts and, and lungs, which is only a practice of the last 40 years or something mm -hmm. anyway, but they take a lung or they take a heart out of someone's body and then they put it on ice. Mm -hmm. 
and then it only lasts so long and then they put it in the, the other body he's created this or helped create this technology he was the first surgeon to do the transplant that that they take the, the lung or the heart and they keep it they put it in a device so that it's still pumping it's still working and then they can then they put it into somebody's body uh, or the transplant I don't know what the what the language is but mm-hmm. but uh, I think the reason why that's important is because first of all they can they can mend it they can make it better even before they put it in and second of all it can last longer like they, so it can only last so long on ice mm. but this they can transport it around the world or uh, so it's very impressive wow it's incredible yeah. of course in Iran I don't think I need involved. to interview him anymore I think <laughs> I've done a good enough job of explaining I mean I might as well be the surgeon yeah, let's face it follow up uh, questions I, <laughs> would you like to know no, how we do the procedures well, uh, that's, Rook, that's a show <laughs> that's great no, I'm already I, so impressed I, I kid of course and I will kid with him about the fact that he's putting you know us all to shame I, I can only imagine already like mm-hmm. I've been dreading my mother listening to this show you know because she'll she won't say you are a failure, my yeah. son, but she'll say, "Oh, one doctor, maybe he was a doctor and an engineer." You know, <laughs> just kind of look at yeah. me, and I'll be like, "Yeah, I know." I, I can already I'm feel not myself either of those things. Yeah. I can already feel myself becoming one of those mothers, like <laughs> telling my kids, "You better become a doctor." Well, does your does your um, uh, significant other, <laughs> does your partner yes. who is a doctor know? Of doctor, yes, I, I, yes, yeah. he does. I believe all medical professionals he's, probably. I would think he's. He's a an very, Iranian doctor, so of course he's heard of him and uh, has a huge respect for him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I do not. This is the first time hearing about. You've him. never heard of. Him. I've never heard of him, right. which is a shame. Then how do you know if your doctor partner's heard of him? I've spoken to him, and uh, he, you he's, said his he's, name. He's heard right. of him. Yes. Do you know? Uh, do you want me to explain the breathing lung transplant again? <laughs> One more time for the cheap seats. <laughs> I really like that. Eh? Oh, uh, no, well, I've just been reading. I've been obsessed with it I mean I'm gonna ask him to explain mm-hmm. it better but I just I, I, it blows my mind yeah, that, and amazing. it blows my mind that he took the initiative to to he, he, it's not enough to be saving lives and to be the surgeon and be the professor and be the, all the things he he is but that he takes the initiative to think of new ways to better our, our world um, and uh, you know, I think about that, and then I look at you, Captain Reza, and think, <laughs> why did some of us fail so badly? <laughs> he adds value into my life, Gian. He, I'm trying to think of something. But Captain Reza? Yes. Wow, yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he I'm, makes, I'm your punching bad. You get yeah, exactly. He makes it easy to make fun of. Listen, if you're ever lost at sea, Oh, he's hey. a captain. He can That's take right. you. You know, That's he can. Right. He's a marine. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I make a documentary about Mr. Ardahali's oh, yeah. life. I think. Right. Hey, That's, that's right. I'll be filmmaker. contributing some See? somehow. Actually, uh, you know, I, I'm going to make this point to him too. But uh, we we joke. But I, I think to be a successful community we need more than just doctors and engineers we need somebody to make the film like you Captain Reza anyway we'll talk to him and um, I'm looking forward to that we've launched our patrons page yes Uh, This is very exciting for us, rookmedia.com. So we've been saying to you guys out there, if you like our content, you know, if you appreciate the show, if you think it's good or you you really are grateful it exists, it's the first thing of its kind in English around the world talking about uh, Iranian diaspora identity. Uh, You can support us and keep our content as ad-free, as commercial-free as possible by becoming a patron. And you do so by going to the website and pressing the red button that says support us, Keon. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say as, Keon. It doesn't it say Keon, support no. us, although we yes. could add that. Support us, Keon. It doesn't Keon. go to me. Let's be very clear. <laughs> uh, and it can be as, lit as little as $5. can be as 
like limitless, really, whatever you feel. That's right. It can be as little as $5 and as much as $6. (laughs) 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 But no, $10, uh, $25, uh, our rock star status is $50 a month and hero at uh, $100. Uh, Any any contribution really helps us. And there's Rook merchandise. Yeah, that's cute. Actually, I watched them on Rook's story, and that's really cute. You know what's weird is we have this Rook merchandise, but we don't have it here. Like we, I'm still, I want to get, like the hoodie looks so cool. I don't have it. I don't want, I want to get one, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, so I guess I, I have to yeah. become a patron. <laughs> I like the Mizunbashin one. There's a t-shirt that yes. says Mizunbashin. Yeah, li- yeah. And the bracelet I have, I love the bracelet. Yeah. But the other thing is, is that we have these Rook um, face masks, uh, you know, for, for the COVID era mm. that I think, you know, even if you just become a BFF, we're going to send you one. We'll send Rook merchandise to any patrons. And, um, and Savvy Roham is creating them. Our own oh, Savvy. No way. Yeah. He, wow. He's creating these because uh, he, he has his little sideline. Savvy Roham's got, you know, he's got, he's a got few, some talent. He's got his, his hand in a few different things. So. Very cool. Yeah. And so uh, if you become a patron, you are welcome to all of those things. Rookmedia.com. Rookmedia.com. I have um, my water in front of me because um, Keon, I've never seen a species of person who drinks, who consumes as much liquid, as much water. <laughs> As Keon, it started by she would bring like one of those gym bottles uh-huh, and yeah. drink water in the studio. Now she's got like a team of people carrying in like <laughs> barrels. barrels of water. Like, what is this thing? I call this my water bucket. It's huge. It's <laughs> is this huge. just for today? It's it's for a full day. The this doc- is like listen, a month's worth. Maybe of the doctor will tell you. I you will need ask water. the doctor. You need this much water but, a day, but, by the way. But this much water is uh, how much. Yeah, <laughs> Do you know how much I talk during the day? I need to replenish my system. Shai, do you think it's safe to drink this much water? I, I know that it's good to drink as much as w- yeah. you can, but yeah. that amount of water... <laughs> you know I'm, what? I'll get I've never you seen one. this much water. <laughs> I'm going to get you one, Gian. <laughs> no, actually, I should drink more water, but I've just mm-hmm. never... I mean, to... to you know, basically, for those of you, uh, there's a you know those water coolers that you have in yes, a yeah. office space. That's what Keon <laughs> carries around with her and just chugs the whole well, thing. I'm too, I'm too lazy to keep going back and forth to get water. So this way, I just have yeah, it readily have available it. next to me. It's off like my best friend. Off <laughs> way to go, uh, Captain Reza. Oh, we have Mona from uh, Melbourne coming yes. up with the Persian proverb of the week, and we're going to get to letters. I think we got some good letters yeah, about uh, Mustafa Heravi, of course, your favorite guy. There, we'll get to that. Uh, Fabulous Keon, Groovy Shia, Captain Reza, stick around. Here we go. My featured guest today is an outstanding Iranian-American surgeon who developed the first cardiopulmonary resuscitation device in physiological conditions outside the human body. He also performed the first successful heart-lung transplant at UCLA, and he has been the first surgeon in the United States to perform a breathing lung transplant. Dr. Abbas Abdehali was born in Tehran, moved to the United States at the age of 16, and since then, uh, he's not exactly been a slacker. He's now the surgical director of UCLA's heart, lung, and heart, lung transplant programs, the William E. Connor Chair in Cardiothoracic Transplantation, a professor of surgery and medicine at the UCLA School of Medicine, and was also the principal investigator behind technology that allows for the transportation of a breathing human heart or lung for an extended period of time. 
Professor Ardahali has received a number of awards, including a Best Doctor in America distinction for the years 2007 to 2016, the Breath of Life Innovation Award from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation in 2013, the Ellis Island Medal of Honor by the National Ethnic Coalition of Organizations in 2017, and the Los Angeles Magazine Top Doctors Award for 2018. And with all of this, he's also a champion of the Persian community in the diaspora and committed to helping spread a positive image of Iranian culture. And right now, Dr. Abbas Ardahali joins me from Los Angeles today. Hello, sir. Well, good afternoon to you, and it's a pleasure to be um, on the uh, Rogue Conversation with you today. It's great to talk to you again. You know, you know, I, I'm I'm afraid I have to start on a note of disappointment with you because, you know, <laughs> life is hard enough for those of us who have failed our Persian parents by not becoming a doctor or engineer, but uh, but you oh. are an acclaimed doctor and engineer, and it really isn't helping the rest of us. You know. Well, I can I can tell you that uh, as I was bring, I was being brought up just like all of us. The importance of education was of paramount importance to us and in in our family. And uh, as, as you mentioned, I uh, did not slack off much. And I have um, done my share of obtaining degrees and uh, pushing through with my educational process. I, I love that you're not, uh, you're unapologetic about it. It's like, it's like what, what did you do? Well, yeah, <laughs> you know, let me just, let me actually, for the record, let's get it out of the way. Let me just read this. You completed your fellowship in cardiothoracic surgery at UCLA, your internal medicine residency at UC San Francisco, a master's degree in public health at UC Berkeley, a med- medical degree at Emory University School of Medicine, both a, a master's degree in chemical and biochemical engineering and an undergraduate degree in biology and biochemistry from both from Rutgers University. I'm sure that's not even the complete list, right? Should I keep going? <laughs> no, well, I think that pretty much sums it up, but I never thought of it as you bring it up. And, uh, and I appreciate the, the acknowledgement that, that you, uh, you have brought up with recognition of all of these degrees well all joking aside we're we're incredibly proud of you i mean you are uh you're sort of a symbol for the community to look at have you always been an overachiever well i have had my shares of of um, areas where i have not um disappointed my family but i think that uh this is uh, education has been an area of strength for me and 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 our family and um and i have um obviously been blessed to have the ability to perform well in the in schools and have the good fortune of being able to educate to and and uh, and be able to finish the educational process. By the way, reading that long list of awards, there didn't seem to be one for 2020. So, uh, Abbas John, I guess you really were slacking off this past year. You know, <laughs> I'm really yeah, deeply well, disappointed. And not a, no award for 2020. That's okay. I I can live one without. And uh, 2020 has been an incredibly um, unique year, as as we all know. And um, I have to tell you that I'm pleased to hear, to see the there is light at the end of the tunnel. 2021 is gonna is promising to be a better year for all of us. Um, I think that the vaccine holds promise, given the current pandemic. I uh, just hope that um, not only everyone in the uh, Western world but also everyone in the sphere in the world um, is um, capable of getting a um, robust vaccine against this virus in the near future so that we can all put this behind us. 
Well, listen, I want to get to your story and I want to ask you about your observations on changes in the Iranian diaspora and the Persian community in the years you've been in America, because you have would have an interesting view on this because you've actually been uh, out of Iran for, you know, four decades or so. Uh, let me ask you first about being at the forefront of medical breakthroughs and the work you do in terms of medicine, what you were just talking about. Let's let's start there. It's only been in the last decade that you have presided over the first breathing lung transplant. Now, I didn't know what that was. I've done my best to to get up to speed on it, learning about it. I mean, it, this is quite incredible. Can you, uh, for our audience in a very simple way, describe what a breathing lung transplant is? Sure. Um, as you know, the first uh, human heart transplant was performed in um, South Africa by a physician called Christian Barnard. Some of us may have recollection of that event. Over the past 50 years or so, um, for us to do a uh, any organ transplant, be it either the heart or the lung or the liver, what we do is that we stop the organ in the donor's body and uh, put it on ice and then bring it to the recipient hospital where the recipient is located and then we perform surgery. Right. Naturally, uh, keeping a human organ on ice is never meant to be physiologic, and as such, it leads to slow damage of the organ, such that we have a limited time span where we can transfer organs from one hospital to the recipient hospital or taking it out of the donor body before we reestablish blood flow in the recipient body. Right. For hearts, it's in the order of about four to six hours. For the liver, it may be a little bit longer. For the lung, it's about six hours or so. And as a result, we are sorry. Not what is six hours? The 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 thawing the, of it, or or the, the I mean, what what it, what is six hours? The the window that you have before it somehow gets damaged. Correct. It's the safe preservation period. Okay. In other words. Given the current technology and what we have been doing for the past 50 years, we cannot keep a human organ outside of a human body on ice for more than six hours. So oh. if we have a donor in Florida, we would not be able to share it with a patient in California. Okay, so it's not or, sitting on ice for weeks. It's, it's, this is a, it's a very short process, even if it is on ice. It's a finite process until the organ gets injured and oh. is no longer used. Unusable. So um, we have to fight against this time, and um, and we do everything we can so that this time is not exceeded, such that we do this procedure in the middle of the night, or we do this on an emergency basis, or we send helicopter or airplanes to transport organs between one center to the other center. Right. But most importantly, we know that that we have this finite time period beyond which we cannot safely keep human organs outside of the human body. Right. So this is something that has intrigued the, the, the minds of many of the transplant pioneers and the specialists for many decades. What if we could take a, uh, some of the donor blood and just pass it through the organ and pretend that the organ is in the donor's body? Hmm. being perfused with the donor blood. And in the case of the heart, the heart is still beating while the blood is circulating through it. In the case of the lung, the blood is circulating through the lung, and we are 
breathing the lung as well. Air goes in and out, blood goes through the lung mm. and through the heart, and the heart and the lung maintains a near physiologic state, near normal state. As far as that organ is concerned, it feels like it is still inside that donor chest. Right. The challenge for us has been to develop this technology. Wait, wait a second. Uh, one, that, one step back. I'm, I'm uh, treat me like I'm in grade five here. So, so uh, that that is fascinating. Creating this avatar, creating this proxy for a human body with with which to keep the the lung, the the blood flowing, etc. What would let's say you were able to do that? You have been able to now, but let in terms of this intriguing people, what would be the advantage of that? Well, the advantage of that are twofold. One is that the organ that we can transplant, even in four or five hours, it will be a better organ for the recipient because it has not been subjected to ice. It's been warm. So it's there, there is some d deterioration when you, went, when you put the organ on ice. Exactly. It is gradual, but it starts at time zero. Ah. A human heart is never meant to be on ice. What's the second advantage? The second advantage is that we can potentially keep organs alive outside of the human body for longer than six hours. Mm. And we can share organs between Canada and the United States or between United States and Europe. And an additional advantage of is that we can potentially repair the damages or improve that organ to be transplanted. Assume that, for example, a lung has a pneumonia in it. If we put it on the machine and we add large doses of antibiotics and give it 24 hours, we can potentially cure that lung wow. of the pneumonia before we transplant it. Wow. Or the heart that has some bruising of the muscle. If we put it on the machine and let it repair itself, we give it some medications or some new genes that make it a better organ because the heart is now being metabolized. It's warm. It's perfused so it can repair itself. So you're speaking now as if this is theoretical, but you've actualized this, right? This is now, you have now done this. That, that is the sort of thing that we are potentially looking at in the years to come. Have we placed an organ on this machine and made it better? Before transplant, yes. Have we placed an organ on this machine and make it a markedly improved, different organ that is much more resistant to damages? Not yet. Will it happen? We think so. We are optimistic that this is, as you correctly pointed out, is a, is a bioreactor for human organs so that we can make them better organs for transplantation. So I, this is probably a superficial analysis, but on the face of it, I'm guessing that keeping a, a lung alive, creating a breathing lung, is a lot more costly than putting it on ice. So this isn't something that's going to be accessible or available to uh, the average uh, Joe or, or, or Reza in the interim, right? <laughs> Correct. Um, it obviously is going to require additional costs and additional labor and resources, yet the potential to the larger community can be, can be remarkable because we can now 
replace organs for humans of for any condition that that they are they have a uh, damaged organ and replace it with a near perfect organ wow so that they are more likely to have enduring life with uh, intact organ function so I'm fascinated by the science of this and and the, this discovery and this and this uh, what you've created. But I'm also fascinated by your role in this and your interest in it. I mean, tell me about the the intersection of Abbas being an inventor and also wanting to help people. Uh, is working on a new discovery like this, like say ways of administering transplants, the perfect marriage of being that engineer and surgeon? I think that um, having been the fortunate person to be at the uh, forefront of the field of solid organ transplantation at UCLA and being able to be engaged with this technology at the very early stages gave me an opportunity to have a, um, a uh, wonderful position to lead and guide this technology in the early stages of development. I was involved in the design of the uh, the product as well as in the early investigations in uh, humans and uh, and and beyond. And I was the uh, principal investigator for the um, what we call this device, organ care system OCS, for the OCS in the heart as well as uh, in the lungs. And um, and I think that this uh, technology is. Uh, not only exciting and um, and potentially transformative in the field of transplantation, but it is incredibly gratifying to be able to have a meaningful impact in uh, future lives. Mm. The ability to be able to um, offer life-saving therapy to patients with end-stage organ diseases um, in the years to come. But you have a meaningful impact by just doing the transplants themselves, the way they've, you know, the, 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 with the with the existing technology. I mean, there's there's something about you that um, seeks to to go deeper, to want to actually be at the forefront of discovering even even newer and better ways of doing this. Where do you think that comes from in you? Right, John. John, I think I think what's um, what's notable uh, is the fact that when I do a transplant. I impact one person and one family's lives. Whereas if you do research, if you innovate, if you are pioneer, you actually may impact many hundreds and thousands of lives in the years to come. And that difference is something that if you ask any innovator or, or pioneer in the field is what drives them to do the work and get up every morning to persevere, despite the chances of success being relatively low. Mm. And I think that that is the driving force behind my uh, interest in not only help a person, a patient, one at a time, but try to innovate such that the, in generations to come, they can derive the benefit of this technology and what has been, what has been done so far. What about the instinct to, to help people at all? I mean, um, uh, I, I'm I'm curious where that comes from. I mean, I mean, you know, take us back. You, your 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 family. If I'm doing the math right, you would have left Iran before the revolution, um, much like my parents did before I was born. Unlike me, you were alive. You lived in Iran until you were 16. Then you came west. Um, 
what, what do you remember from those days in, in Iran? How do you characterize your time as a, as a child in Iran? Did you have this instinct to, to want to help? Well, I, um, I look very um, nostalgically on, uh, on my uh, short time that I had in Iran. I, I left Iran uh, when I was 16, but I can tell you that um, those 16 years probably had more impact my, on my life and my personality and on who I am a lot more than the other two-thirds of my life. Um, as you well know, it is part of any Iranian culture, family, and history is to do everything for their children and advocate for uh, their children to, um, to educate themselves and better themselves. I was no exception of that, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be uh, born and raised in a family where education is uh, valued highly, hard work and commitment is um, strongly believed in, and most importantly, being kind and compassionate is considered to be part of who we are. I think that sometimes we look at the Iranian culture especially for those who have a, a fairly narrow view of Iran and the Middle East and the and what they hear, given what the current climate is, and do not quite understand the human values that the Iranian culture, Iranian family, respects and honors. Right. And um, I personally believe that my life, my 16 years of life in Iran, um, have, uh, without a doubt, impacted who I am today and who, and what I have done. Yes. How, how specifically so? I mean, would have would it have been obvious to anyone meeting Abbas as a as a ten year old kid that you were destined to be a world renowned surgeon? Well, I think that um, part of it was uh, our family values. I think part of it was my robust and strong education that I received for the first 16 years when I was Iran because my foundation was built so strong because of what Iran's educational system was at the time. You were in Tehran, yes? In Tehran. So we're talking about the in, 70s in Tehran? Exactly. Right. Exactly, in, in one of the high schools there. And uh, I didn't go to Alborz, but I went to one of the better high schools. And, uh, and I think that um, with that foundation, with uh, the belief that um, education and helping other human beings is of paramount importance in anyone's life, I think that I was equipped with what is absolutely necessary to succeed in a rigorous society like the U.S. and in an academic environment. Clearly, that we have. Yeah, but did you? But did you know? Did you know as a teenager that these are the kind of fields that you want to go into? That medicine might be the one. Well, um, I, I still vividly remember I was about um, eight or nine years old when I was uh, watching the news when the first human heart transplant was performed. Uh, and for some reason, maybe I'm just thinking about it, but I still remember in a black and white TV that they were reporting, I think, at about 8 p.m. news that the first human heart transplant was performed in, wow. in South Africa. And I think a, a bulb went on in my head. And then I think that the uh, values that my mother and my father instilled in me made me think that 
between all the professions out there, not that all of them are, are noble, no question about that, but what would be more gratifying than if you can actually do something that can directly help others? And, um, and I, I do not say that by saying, by thinking that other professions are not noble sure, because right. every single one of us carry a load in, in making human lives better and uh, one, at, one at a time. However, I think that I am fortunate, I'm blessed to be in a position to be able to directly see how my education, my hard work, and, and my perseverance can translate into improvement in the quality of lives for a human being. Abbasan, why did your family leave Iran? Well, um, my uh, my father had received his PhD in uh, in economics from the U.S. and went back to Iran um, as part of the the Marshall Plan and um, and lived there and uh, married my uh, mom and uh, I have. Um, five siblings and and we came one at a time at around right before revolution and before high school most of us but my family my mom and my my mother and father um were very much tied to iran and and um and iranian values and they never wanted to fully emigrate so uh my parents unfortunately passed away about six or seven years ago yet um they continued and they loved the Iran and what Iran stands for, the culture, the human beings there, mm -hmm. and they wanted to reside there. They obviously used to come here quite frequently given their children and their grandchildren, but they never picked up residence in the U.S. despite uh, uh, the many reasons for their um, attachment to this country as well. They must have been very proud of you. Well, I am more proud of them. I think that um, everything that I have is owed to them. I consider myself the most fortunate to to have been raised in that family and also in that culture. So I think it's the combination and the interfacing of the family values, the human values, and the cultural values that have made me who I am. And I think that I'm, I'm, I consider myself incredibly blessed to have been the recipient of everything that everyone has done for me up to now. You know, part of the imperative of this show is to is to tell our stories in an attempt to, once we have this tapestry of stories, to really forge what our identity is outside being of Iranian descent, but living outside of Iran and being being part of new nationalities, American, Canadian, etc. Uh, what was it like for you coming to America as an Iranian teen in the 70s? Well, um, I can tell you that um, it, it was quite... Um, challenging, exciting, um, mixed feelings, uncertainties. When I came to the U.S., it was before the revolution. Everyone here had a different image of, of the Iranians and the um, Iranian um, students. Within two or three years with the revolution and the hostage-taking, right. things turned upside down. A lot of us who had come here with the intention of getting an education and going back and contributing to your to our own homeland, that intention, that um, vision 
turned upside down. I actually was applying to medical school right after the hostage taking. And I still vividly remember that my GPA was higher, my record was much better, and um, I interviewed at one of the most renowned medical schools in Southeast. I would not mention the name. And my interviewer turned around and asked me, so when are you going to release our hostages? I think that that sentence sums up the the degree of challenge that we all, those of us who are in the United States at that time, faced. That we were the face of the hostage takers for the America. And that was a challenging times for all of us. And for the past 40-some years, we have all worked and done our best, to our best, to the best that our abilities allow to to fabricate a positive image for the Iranian diaspora, for individuals of Iranian descent. I think you are a good example. And when I listen to uh, some of your conversations on the on the website, you have a um, a wide variety of of who we are. Yes. And I um, I commend you for your effort to try to create this fabric of what the real Iranian diaspora is. But the facts are that we were um, dealt a hand because of the political upheaval. And um, this group of, of immigrants have done the best they can. And I am proud to say, after 40-some years, that we are amongst the most educated, the most uh, contributing members of any community that we have taken part with. But we also, as a community, have our scars. Uh, you know, right. there's no one I've interviewed on this program. I mean, sometimes people say, why do you keep talking about the revolution? Why do you keep talking about it? B- because it comes up. I mean, no, no, no one's family story, um, can elude the difficulties that have existed, uh, you know, uh, in the last few decades for, uh, Iranians, even outside of any sort of partisan political talk or something like that, you know, this, just, just in terms of the realities of what, of, of the upheaval of a culture of, of, of a, of a nation state, literally, and then uh, the the manifestations of how that plays out over the years for people in the diaspora. You know, with respect to those scars, you tell the story, I mean, you've got this amazing doctor's tone, which is very... <laughs> very effective you know when you have to deliver difficult information i I would imagine but uh, you know saying something like that in the calm tone that you say it does uh, perhaps betrays how difficult it must have been at the time i mean this is outrageous that somebody you're a top student and that you know uh and you're young you're a kid and that somebody is who who has the power and influence to be able to get you um, and into their program would say when are you going to release our hostages what does that do to your psyche how did you work through that yeah well i think that it it's it's incredibly discouraging um because uh, many of us look at those positions of authority with so much awe that we think that they know what the correct answers are and, and they know what the real issues are. But the fact is that they are also as uh, have a narrowed view on, on many things. 
But the fact is that this revolution impacted all of us, directly or indirectly. And I do not mean to say anything political, but the change in the political structure in Iran have influenced all of us in one way or the other. And I believe that in face of uh, enmity and, and adverse situation, we as a community always rise up and try to make the best of it. And I think that I know of many individuals under these circumstances with similar stories like myself who have made the best of what they have. And I think it speaks to the resilience of our community, the values we hold dear sure. as, as Iranians, and uh, the upbringing that, that we have had. And I remain quite, quite optimistic about our first generation in diaspora, my kids, your or your your cousins or others who were born or yourself even. Right. I um, I think the prototyping is or stereotyping is going to go away that everybody should become an engineer or a doctor. I um, I think that now we're beginning to realize well, how sure. important it is. Yeah. <laughs> that that too, yeah. <laughs> how important it is to be. Um, to be a lawyer, to be a politically active, or to be a community activist. Sure. To At be the end a, of the day, uh, we need a diverse community. We can't, you know, it doesn't, as, as great as it is to have doctors and engineers, it doesn't serve us to only have doctors and engineers. We need, we need people in all professions to really, uh, and, and we need to integrate, you know, we need to exactly. really not, I mean, I know the Los Angeles Iranian community uh, has been there for a long time, but there's other places in the world world and Toronto would be one of them where the immigrant uh, the the Iranian community is is a lot newer here for the most part not my family but and there is a there's an insular quality sometimes with this community let's come and let's sort of squat here and just talk to each other and not integrate into the broader community and and that's that's always been an issue for me in terms of exercising our social and and, and economic and and cultural uh, and political uh, clout as a community as we grow in numbers Exactly, and I think that what you are doing, Jian John, um, with this with this podcast is is a uh, a good example of what we need to do as a larger community. We cannot, as you said, we can all be doctors or or, or engineers and be very successful, but I think that a broad based community needs more than just that. And the fact that I see that more and more on the next generation people who are involved in politics, who are running for offices, yeah. who are community activists, who bring recognition to the, uh, to the community. This is what we need to do as a, uh, as a larger society. We need to, be, to have representation at the table where the decisions are being made. We we went through that list of all the schools you went to in terms of your education, uh, your elevated, your amazing education in the, in the U.S. Uh, UC San Francisco, UC Berkeley, the Emory University School of Medicine, uh, Rutgers for your your masters and your your undergrad. Um, so during that time, you're in the states. Was it always a foregone conclusion at that point that you were going to stay in America, or or did you entertain the idea of going back to Iran even post revolution? Well, I've always envisioned that um, when I came here, I, my my plans were uh, and my family's plans were that 
we would educate here and we would go back just like my father did. Yet the dynamics changed. I um, may have, um, I, I actually have gone back on multiple occasions to give lectures and, and talks. However, I um, have never envisioned uh, moving back because of the variety of reasons. I think that um, I wish there was an opportunity for many of us to go back and give back to our ancestors and the families that we were part of. However, it has it has not happened. Uh, but what I try to have done is to number one, I uh, I have many visitors from um, from the Iranian universities and uh, and uh, medical centers who are interested in this field, and we welcome them to UCLA, and they spend from weeks to, to months in uh, here with us, and we try to help them with that. I've also gone back on multiple occasions um, to give uh, lectures at the uh, medical meetings, and uh, believe it or not, I've actually done transplants in Iran, in Tehran. So although a small part but I do think that an integral component of, of a fruitful life is to give back. And um, I can't think of anything more deserving than to give back to, to the Iranian, individual Iranian families who are in need right now. I wish we could do more, but as, as all of us, I'm still optimistic that things will get better. The political climate will improve such that we can exchange in all fields between the Western world and the uh, and Iran. Well, you're you're in Los Angeles, um, which of course is long identified as one of the epicenters of Iranians who live in the diaspora. And you would, um, whether you like it or not, be considered one of the captains of our community. And uh, just just in terms of your your prominence and what you've accomplished, you've also been there for a while. H how would you characterize the way you've seen the the Iranian community change or evolve over the years? Um, a very interesting question um, because uh, the one thing I can tell you is that there is no one answer to this question. Obviously, it's a very heterogeneous um, population that reside in, in Southern California. And um, as time has changed or as time has gone by, the, the vision, the impressions of this community has also changed. I think that um, um, compared to 30, 40 years ago when many people were hoping to go back, everybody is now uh, determined that this is where their lives will be. Mm. The uh, first generations are still in the, um, in the shock state or, or recovering after that, that this is where they and their families will reside. The second generation, which or the first generation that were born in the States, um, are very much diverse, and they have really interfaced with the American communities in a seamless way. They have become part of the fabric of uh, Southern California, and um, they sometimes you can't even tell that their parents were are Iranians. Mm -hmm. A reflection of that is something we just talked about, their engagement in variety of fields and pushing the envelope just like any other immigrant community to uh, integrate fully in their new home. 
I think that one of the things that we as a group are recognizing is the importance of being engaged in our political system so that our voices are heard when decisions are, are being made. As Iranians, we have been somewhat reluctant to get engaged in the political system, but I think that in any democracy, this is of critical importance. Yeah to participate. Otherwise, although, although, of course, our community is quite balkanized even within that. Correct. <laughs> or even more so, which <laughs> we get into the, the politics of, of, of the West. You would know that sitting in Los Angeles after the last election, right? right? Very much so, very much so. And, and uh, everything that has transpired in the past uh, few years is a reflection that unless we all get engaged, anything is possible. In response to your question how the diaspora in Southern California has changed, I think that the one thing for sure is that the Iranian diaspora remains very successful um, in terms of the um, education, in terms of investment, in terms of assets, in terms of their political clout. Um, and uh, we are slowly um, transitioning to a uh, integrated part of the uh, an immigrant community where our children becomes part of the fabric mm. we are involved in the political system we are a force to reckon with not only in terms of the um, education or in terms of uh, value in terms of philanthropy in terms of support in terms of other factors that is integral to the success of of any communities I remain quite optimistic about what the future holds. You've said that. You've said you're you're quite optimistic. What? How would you answer this question? If I said, what is the greatest barrier to success for Iranians in the diaspora, uh, either on a personal level or as a community? I would say coming together. We as a group need to unite our forces. I know uh, for Iranians or for, any, for many groups in the Middle East, um, coming together is a difficult proposition. But I do think that we need to um, develop some, some organization um, in our community that have a voice, help them, support them in meaningful, impactful ways, and have them advocate for us. As, as a community of great attributes and great strength. You know, you said something earlier uh, that I jotted down and, um, I, and I want to drill down a little bit on because uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that you're not somebody who says things that you don't mean. You use specific words. And, and so uh, normally I would ask you how you self-identify. I mean, you've talked about that. You've talked about, uh, you know, obviously you, you live in the States. Uh, I, I'm sure that on some levels you're a proud American there as well. But, but that you really, those first 16 years really impacted you, your parents. You really have this Iranian pride. And you said we have three things that sort of in our DNA, uh, so to speak, uh, um, uh, metaphorically, of course, I'm talking to a doctor. <laughs> um, uh, you said, you know, family value. Values, human values, and cultural values. I think the family values part I get, and I think most people would understand who, who know Iranians or who are Iranian. What do you mean by human values? The drive in all of us 
to go out, out of our way to help another helping, help needing hand. I think that we have a, um, a intrinsic uh, part of our culture and nature to go out of the way and, and help help others at the time of need. And um, I have seen that firsthand still in the Iranian culture the few times that I've gone back. I see how a community comes together to help another person in in Iran, in, in Tehran, in our families, and when, when somebody meet, uh, uh, has a uh, challenge facing them. But I think that um, that that human value of of helping others at the time of need is something that, as as we mentioned before, is part of what has driven me to pick this profession, and uh, and has formulated my uh, my trajectory. Hmm. I, I think that that human values that are are ingrained in in our culture. And um, and I think that that has that has been a wonderful part of us, which I hope will remain strong and will never fade away, because we have faced many challenges in the past many past decades that could easily dissuade you from these yeah. um, values that you hold. You know, it's a, it's a good pleasure to talk to you. I have really enjoyed this. Let me come back to your profession that you just spoke of and what you chose um, based on those human values. Um, I mean, again, I you know, it's always a, a challenge with a program like this. It's a variety program. We're not our audience is not made up of doctors uh, necessarily, although there are many in the Iranian community uh, and listening around the world. For most of us. Our education around top-level surgeons has come from TV shows and movies. <laughs> so I have my Grey's Anatomy version of what you do, but what sure. what is the most challenging part of what you do from a medical standpoint? Um, I think the most challenging part is um, when you cannot help a needy person or a, or a person that you know would not have any other options without you. I think that the most difficult part of my professional career is when I lose a patient. And I wish there was a way that I could say that I would have 100% success, but it doesn't happen. It's 99. some percent. And when you are dealing with that patient or their family, it challenged you to your core to be able to be comforting to them while maintaining your own composure. Even though I've been doing this for more than 20 years, it still continues to challenge me every time that I lose a patient or every time that there is a situation where I have to... Um, comfort the the family members yeah i can only imagine what uh, you having to do that is is like H has covid been a nightmare for you well um covid has been a challenge for for everyone i was fortunate to be at the um in a position to be able to dictate how we accept 
human organs during the COVID pandemic. And I'm very proud to say that last year we did the largest number of heart and lung transplants in the history of UCLA and on the West Coast. And uh, we did not have a single case of transmission of uh, COVID. We have uh, transplanted patients who have had uh, COVID before with good outcomes. Wow. And, um, and, sorry, um, sorry. meaning that you had to ensure that the organs had not been infected with COVID? Is, is that what you mean? Right. So uh, two things. Number one is that we had to make sure that organs came from donors that were COVID negative. Right. And you can imagine that some of these brain dead donors are in the ICUs and right next to them, there are multiple COVID positive patients. So it really tested the organ donation in the United States or across the world. How can you be sure that that donor that you are taking the organ from is not exposed to a COVID virus in an ICU where COVID is rampant? We instituted some policies to ensure that how we test for COVID and when we test for COVID to minimize the risk to the recipient. In addition, we had to test the recipients to make sure that nobody's going into surgery when they have the COVID virus exposed to them. So we had both fronts that we needed to test. Mm. And, um, and I'm fortunate and I'm proud to say that um, despite the, the largest number that we've done in the history of UCLA and the West Coast, um, we did not have a case of transmission from a donor to the recipient. Uh, that was just parenthetically. Um, I'm thinking about the fact that back in, it would be April or May, um, we did an interview with Dr. Arshid Azadin, who works on heart matters in cardiovascular radiology in Paris. And he was saying at the time something that was quite alarming to him was that he felt or that they were discovering that COVID puts extra pressure on the heart and that it imperils people's hearts somehow. I, I know that what COVID is has been transforming over the year uh, and, and we keep hearing different things, but I can't think of a better person to ask this of. Uh, is there some correlation between um, COVID and, and the heart? And is it something to be concerned about for those who have had COVID? There is a correlation. However, the correlation is not very strong. In other words, the individuals who have had COVID um, infection, unless they develop specific symptoms, they do not have to worry about damages to the heart. COVID does cause heart failure. In fact, about a month and a half ago, I transplanted a 22-year-old person in, in Los Angeles who had developed COVID about three months before wow. and, had, and the COVID had impacted his heart and he developed end-stage heart failure. So his lungs were recovered, but his heart was not. So he was in a machine for about 12 days before we found him a suitable heart, a 22-year-old guy who had had COVID. Although that example is very rare, fortunately, but one can say that in vast majority of individuals who have contracted COVID, they do not have any manifestations of heart problem, and the heart failure associated with COVID is very rare, less than 2%.
Sorry, were you able to save him, the 22-year-old? Yes, yes, he's gone home. That's he's amazing. Gone home to his with a different heart. He actually, yes, with wow. a different heart. And he, he has a, uh, a nine-month-old daughter that he was delighted to see because he could not see the child um, while he was in the hospital for about two months. But, uh, but he's gone home, he's doing well, and, um, and we expect full recovery. That must feel like such a triumph for you. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's the highest of the highs that one can get as a human being. You know, as I, as I uh, we finish off here and I let you go, I, it's very intense what you do, right? I mean, I mean, you are at the top of your game, but I can only imagine it's an intense schedule. It's emotionally intense. You've talked a bit about that, working quite literally with life and death. How, how much longer do you want to be doing what you do? Huh. That's a good question because my wife keeps asking me the same thing, and <laughs> um, and sometimes I... To get passive, Baba Yes, um, and um, and I do think that um, uh, there has to be a um, a exit plan. Um, I think that um, an integral component of 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 that is to ensure that there is a succession plan and other individuals who have acquired the skill set and the knowledge base to be able to continue the work. And, um, and I um, will do my very best to ensure that this continues and because we have a commitment to patients. We have to ensure that this uh, goes on with improved technology, improved knowledge base. And I will do my part as soon as I think that there is someone whom I feel comfortable to be able to uh, assume the responsibilities. I think that you're absolutely right. I can think of a few other things that are less stressful than this. You can write some bestsellers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it's been a it's been a great honor and a, and a true pleasure. And I hope we can continue the conversation. And uh, I thank you so much for coming on, Rook. It's a uh, pleasure to speak with you, Jian John. And uh, again, I, I commend you for what you and your colleagues do because an integral component of a, um, of a community is to have this level of uh, knowledge that, that gets disseminated about who we are and what we do. And you and your group play a, a very important role in that process. Thank you, sir. And thank you for all you do. And, and thanks again for coming on. And, and uh, I'll let you get back to, to saving lives. Merci. All right. You're welcome. Nice to speak with you. Take Hold care off. now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Abbas Adhali is the Surgical Director of UCLA's Heart, Lung, and Heart, Lung Transplant Programs, the William E. Connor Chair in Cardiothoracic Transplantation, and a Professor of Surgery and Medicine at the UCLA School of Medicine. He joined us from Los Angeles today. version of the uh, Rook theme on the sand tour. That's Sina Batai, the great musician uh, hailing from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Um, Dr. Abbas Ardahali, wow, uh, the microphones are back on. Captain Reza, Groovy Shaya, the fabulous Keon 
Uh, it almost seems redundant to say he's impressive. I so enjoyed that conversation. Fabulous, Keon. Your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I'm, it makes me so proud to be Iranian just from the fact that we have so much talent in the diaspora. It just every every interview you do, I find myself surprised. Like, where were these people? I, I, people that I had never heard of, you know. Um, and it also makes me sad in a way. You know, you think of all the brain drainage that came out of Iran who had the plan to go back to their own country to better their own, pe- you know, their mm-hmm. society for their own people. But after the revolution, they didn't have that option. So, I mean, it's a shame in a way. Mm-hmm. What, how, how great Iran could have been mm-hmm. if we all stayed there. In answer to your question, where have these people been? Uh, in the operating room, saving lives, <laughs> it would be the answer, I think, yeah. of, in the case of Dr. Adahali and inventing the, the, you know, the transplant, the breathing lung thing, which Very was impressive. just uh, fascinating to me. Um, Captain Reza? You know, my mother listens to the show. And uh, I hope she God love li- her. I know. And Hi, I Captain Reza's mom. <laughs> Where is she? She's in Iran right now, but she's 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 coming here in in August. Beautiful, uh, for good. But uh, I hope she doesn't listen to this interview because it's going to remind her <laughs> of the disappointment <laughs> that yes. I am yeah. and the doctor that she wanted to be yeah. me to be. This person is the genuine example of everything that every uh, Persian mother aspires for their for their children to be to and become. So. Could not have been more proud, honestly, than listening to Mr. Ardahali. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Uh, Shia. And and by the way, to Reza's mom, um, <laughs> we feel your pain. <laughs> he's a captain, though. He, so. But he's a captain. Is but Dr. Abbas Ardahali a captain? I think oh, not. I think not. Yeah. Uh, Shia? Um, what can I say? I mean... The, we are what does your mother? What's your mother going to think? That's <laughs> most important. Yeah, same, same as Reza. I mean, same yeah. as Reza's mom. Yeah, but a bunch no, of artists. <laughs> yeah, but really, what can I say? I actually I surprised because I kind of understood all the uh, scientific part. All I think that's a credit to him. Yes, he exactly, was very accessible exactly. as a speaker. He, yeah. Exactly. He he knows how to describe those things. Yeah. For, yeah. And it's great. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why, not just why he's so impressive, but he's so likable, if I dare say that about a, a guest who's just, uh, we've just finished the interview with, but uh, is that you, he's very clear minded. You really get us, and you also, also get a sense from him, as I was doing the interview, I was thinking, this is a guy who uh, um, he knows who he is. He knows what he is considered important, and he's he's been very consistent about that for years. And and that is in and of itself is so impressive and so likable when you when you come across someone who's by the way doing important and great work, but really has a sense of knowing what they think is important, knowing who they are, and um, knowing how they want to pay it forward or give back. Uh, it's. Um, it's great. That's great. If I may say one more thing bef- before we move Is on. Is it related to your mother? <laughs> no. It's, it's okay. actually yeah. related to Rook and what Mr. Ardahali said, Dr. Ardahali, who uh, at the end he ended with saying, uh, Rook is an important initiative, and it really is, bringing these individuals to light. And what Gian asked, he asked a very interesting question that caught my attention. He was like, um, what is the biggest challenge of Iranian, of the diaspora, do you mm-hmm. think? And he said that camaraderie and that sense of support for one another. And I think that... Being unified. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the yeah. unification. And especially ending it with Rook and this initiative being an important part. I think 
us as individuals will do our parts one at a time and then collectively we all we all, we're always waiting for a big big movement a big action to be taken place so that we can join or be a part of it but i think for instance and again i'm not trying to say tell people become a patron of rook or contribute to us but this please tell them to do that <laughs> i'm not yeah. gonna force you but <laughs> right. if we want change we have to be change we have to become part of a bigger movement so if we uh, claim that we want a, a better diaspora if we, we claim that we want a better community it can start with contributing a small portion to uh, init important initiatives like rook become a patron well and get, uh, keep this I mean I, th I appreciate you saying that part but I also I think uh, um, we just have to have conversations with each other we have to know each other I mean what's really nice 10 months into Rook now mm -hmm. is hearing from people who are connecting with other Iranians because of Rook right. saying uh, oh I didn't know she was in Vancouver I, I went and met with her you know and and that connective tissue is something that really has been missing especially in English That's right. uh, like when Keon says uh, you know Dr. Abbas Ardhali, who knew, I mean, obviously he's very famous in, in his field, but for many Iranians around the world, we might not know who this is. Yes. Just like we don't know the great piano players and the great engineers and all of that necessarily. And so um, that that's, that's you know, it, it, not that it should always be about celebration. We got to have the difficult conversations and talk about the issues, but but um, that's that's a big deal for us to know each other and to, to recognize that connective tissue. Um, speaking of knowing Iranians from around the world, uh, there's some in Australia, mm. including the person behind the popular Inglisi Farsi, I could hear her laughing already, Inglisi Farsi Instagram page. She is the Persian priestess of Proverbs, the Australian sage of sayings, the wondrous woman of words, and our resident Rook wordsmith for the last few weeks. She's joining us right now from Australia. She is Mona from Melbourne. Hello, Mona. Hello, team. How Fabian. are you? Uh, I'm, honestly, I'm a bit sad. It's my last session with you guys. I'm, no. I'm honestly a little bit sad. Well, yeah. no one told you to go and have more children. <laughs> that was your choice. Well, it's interesting you say that because I was already pregnant when you asked. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, by yeah, the way, yeah. uh, sorry, go ahead, Mona. I'd say you, you, I, no. I sensed you were going to say something nice, so please keep talking. Oh, no, yeah. no, no. I'll let, I'll let you go ahead. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say something nice. I want to address Keon and Reza here <laughs> because what? I have some news for you two. Oh, no. It oh, seems yes. that Mona and Shia... Oh. have been talking like in the back end discussing proverbs and things like that oh. you know how each week it seems like shia has discovered the saying <laughs> it turns out i caught them red-handed you know i was talking to mona a little earlier and she said well when i was talking to shia about the proverb i'm like wait a minute what talking to shia no wonder he seems like the genius who comes up with these things each week turns out he's been you know back channeling with mona in yes, Australia. Uh, yes i have to admit that once it happened but not always, <laughs> only uh, once. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> uh, you gotta come that. clean, Shia. We can't discredit his skills. He, he definitely has some skills. <laughs> so, uh, Mona John, what who what are you bestowing upon our imaginations today? All right. So, it, as for our last session, um, we've we've talked about a lot of um, 
animals. We've talked about, um, you know, geese and chickens and camels, <laughs> and we're going right back around to the to the first to the first session with camels. Um, it's a it's actually a saying, but has like proverbial sort of meanings behind it. Um, and I've got a, a really interesting story that I've discovered um, that's linked in with it. And I thought I'd share that first, and then we can go into. Um, some concrete examples. Okay, it's a saying today. It's a, it's a <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's a Persian saying that my mom used to say all the time. Okay, and it's so interesting because I didn't know it had origins. Um, that yeah, are, and are it so involves, different to what it, I it involves it camels. Yeah, well, the, uh, a body part of the camel. <laughs> a, a body part of the camel. Oh, oh, okay. I love when we get into the camel talk on this show. <laughs> it's Shator. A, yeah, Shator. If it's, a, it's an old, old British band or something we used to make high heels for. for you. Is it? Really? Uh, well, I don't British know. Band. Well, it is an old British band. Yeah, the camel. Oh, yeah, I didn't yeah. know. You'll have to listen to our Pink Floyd series, dear Mona. Oh, um, yes, I should. <laughs> so, okay, t- you were going to tell us how this saying came about that your mom always uses well um yes that's right the origin story which i didn't know existed and to be perfectly honest this has been a really great learning curve for me because all of these parables are explained in persian so i've really had to brush up on my persian skills um because yeah i've been learning myself so here goes the story so the parable um this parable is is, um, related to when a person is afflicted with a calamity and does not know that he'll provide new calamity for himself So in the old days, um, there was a a guy who had a hump on his back and he always suffered from it, not only aesthetically, but due to the pain and burden of the said hump. Mm. One night he woke up suddenly and thought it was morning and he decided to go to the hammam. So back in the day, um, the hammam was a shared bath, so no one had their own bathrooms in their own home. So he, he packed up his things and he went. And as he approached this bathroom, he heard the sounds of singing and dancing and general merriment. He didn't really pay much attention to this as he entered this hammam. The man with the, the sound hump. Of, the man with the hump. The man is, with the hump. All right, yeah. Yes. He doesn't have a name, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> um, and so this man um, heard the singing and um, it became louder and louder and still he continued to ignore it. And then when he entered the dressing room and took off his clothes and went into the sauna, he saw that people were dancing and singing and he decided, okay, well, everyone's being so joyful, I might as well dance and sing along too. Forgetting all his worries and all his troubles, he participated in this little dance party um, in this hammam back in the day. Mm. Now, Snake. after some time, yes, naked dance party. <laughs> he was, he was lofty potty, lofty potty. <laughs> um, Is the saying "Burning Man" because it sounds like a uh, we invented Burning Man. <laughs> sounds this like a hippie uh, <laughs> retreat yeah, in uh, the, the California desert. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> So after some time, he looked down and noticed these people's legs were poisoned. His whole body started to tremble, and he realized that these people were in fact goblins. In his heart, he asked God to be his refuge and tried to act cool, pretending like nothing was wrong. A few minutes later, the goblins realized that the man was human. Um, But because they'd spent so much joyful time with him and looked upon him as their friend, they didn't want any harm to beset him. And they actually decided to help him and remove that actual hump from his back which was Mm. quite surprising now this man was so happy so overjoyed his hump was gone he thanked the the goblins and um 
he was he was so grateful and returned home um, very joyful. The next day, he went to the, the markets and he saw his friend. And this friend actually also had a hump. <laughs> and his friend was really surprised. He said, where's your hump, man? What happened? Um, and he approached and <laughs> Wait, wait, hang him. on a second. <laughs> where's your hump, man? <laughs> like a hump. <laughs> where, where is this story from? <laughs> the hunchback of Notre Dame, clearly. Um, I have, it doesn't actually have context in the story. But is I it a Persian story? Or no, no. Yes. Oh, okay. It, it has it to a- be because it was on a Persian website and there's no like, it's not documented anywhere. It's just like one of those wor- um, sort of anecdotal right. stories okay. that are passed down. Right. Yeah. So where's your and hump, so man? Far out. You're like, where's out? your yeah. hump, man? Yeah, Where yeah. is it? What it's are like you doing? Hate Ashbury all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, it's the 60s in where's San Francisco. <laughs> Dude, where's your hump? Where's your hump? <laughs> uh, and the man bro. smiled and explained to him. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. You want to keep going? <laughs> um, then the man smiled and explained to him what happened last night. And this this friend was inspired and decided a few nights later to go to the same hammam um, and see if these goblins can help me as well because, you know, I, I kind of don't want to hump either. Mm. So he proceeded to join um, the merriment and dancing um However, unfortunately, these goblins weren't faring particularly generous that evening and they saw the man and for some reason felt he was disingenuous. Um, and instead of removing the hump, they actually gave him another hump. Oh. And this poor man was so upset he couldn't do anything and he said, I was miserable and now I've got another hump on my hump. <laughs> so I'm not sure if this rings any bells for anyone or if you've heard of this. <laughs> well, we can't ask um, Shia because we know. No, oh, sorry, I got we, it too. I you know, got it, Reza? I, I got oh, it. What, what is it? Oh, it. wow. Wait, 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 hang on, hang on. I have no Let's clue. What is hump? I'm trying to remember what uh, hump I is. I totally uh, got it and I'm so glad I found it. No, hang on. Uh, no, I remember hump because um, she's, they would say the uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, they would say... Uh, is it Ooze? 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 In this instance, this man was intending to have a solution, but in, unfortunately, uh, due to you know circumstances out of his control, um, it actually became worse. So it's ghuz uh, um, So is it ghuz balaye ghuz or ghuz? How do you say it? I would say ghuz balaye shot. Yeah. So you would use this when someone's causing more problems. You would say "ruze Is that correct? Yes. It's kind of like it's it's like working with Keon. Every day. Every day is a "ruze Literally. Well, actually, I had a good rogue example if you want me to share. Yes, please. So the rogue team, Gian is rearing to go for the next episode. He's in the studio. The interviewer is ready. Everything's ready to go, and he gets a call from Shia. Shia says that he's horizontal from all the lubia polo he eats, and today he can't make it to the studio. And Gian's like, "That's okay. No worries. No problems. I still got my team. We got this." And then his phone beeps, 
he gets a text from Keon. <laughs> She's been surprised by the doctor and they're going on a romantic getaway. <laughs> so she can't come to the studio. Oh, <laughs> but um, Gian, forever the optimist, um, is still worried. Um, is still not worried because right. he's got his team. Captain he's got Reza. Ponta the artist, the Captain artist. Reza, ready to roll. And a few minutes roll by and guess what? Oh. He gets a call from Reza. He's stuck in traffic and won't be able to make it because he's shopping for stylish clothes with his girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and then, oh next minute, guess who calls? Ponta the artist, yeah. Ponta the artist, and she's stuck in a snowstorm and can't make it to the studio. Right. So we say, Oh, boy. boy. It's kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. But, <laughs> it does. Yeah, uh, oh, which also has camel in it. Yeah. But except for that's <laughs> yes. like the ultimate goose that, you know, broke all the other gooses, kind of, right? Yeah. Uh, but, it means like Gian's quit broke. Like, that's it. He's done. <laughs> yeah, that's He's done the, with that's you the, all. The, yeah. Goose, <laughs> 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 would, it, would it be fair to say when it rains it pours or oh, Murphy's yeah. Law yeah. is the closest is an equivalent of uh, I think you can combine all of them to sort of say, say the same thing well I'm so thrilled that you worked camels and camel culture into this uh, <laughs> This, uh, like that. this final episode for now of Motor from Melbourne with uh, uh, the Persian proverb of the week. Listen, um, we'll be in touch with you. We're, we're, we can't wait to hear the news of the new arrival, and we're excited for you. And um, and uh, hopefully everything will be safe and sound and happy. And and um, we'll talk more soon. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Lovely to speak to you all again. We'll Thanks, dear Mona. Mona. Bye, Mona. Take care. We'll miss you. Bye, 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 bye. 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 That's Mona Kiani, Mona from Melbourne. You know, she's being modest there when she says her Farsi isn't great because uh, that's part of the charm of her Instagram page, which you should check out. Inglisi Farsi. She posts words and the Persian translation of them. Inglisi Farsi on Instagram. Mona from Melbourne. Letters, letters of the week coming up. I just wanted to mention that our at Rook Media, you can go and become a patron of this program and support what we do. We really appreciate it. It is the way we'll stay alive. We have a BFF that I wanted to mention. Uh, depending on the category, you, you you're a BFF or a rock star or an idol or a legend. Uh, Marlene Curry mm. is a BFF, and I mentioned her because she's written in a, a few times to yeah, our, our show as well. Thank you very much, Marlene. And on that note. Letters of the week. I'm always so envious of anybody that can do the Bishkan. I know. I can I never can't, figure I it can't. out. <laughs> the Bishkan being a weird way of snapping. <laughs> that, it's pretty cool. Yeah. That's, that's secret club stuff. That's only Iranians understand yeah, that with, yeah. with each other. Do that to a Canadian prisoner. Yeah, like, what like, are you doing? What's wrong with your hand? Yeah. <laughs> well, so last week on episode 85, we had renowned Iranian Dutch photographer, visual artist, video director, and filmmaker Mustafa Hiravi on the show. 
who's officially become my favorite all-time, my all-time favorite oh, rock wow. guest. Wow! Really? And has since also become the inspiration for many people to enter the camel trading business. <laughs> <laughs> He's just the greatest. If if you haven't had a chance to listen to him, please do. It's a lot of fun, that is. Yeah. So on YouTube, we have a Ray Sherwin wrote, such a good move to interview Iranian talents. Thank you. Do you think Ray Sher- Sherwin is Iranian or maybe he's just Ray Sherwin? I never know. Yeah. But you said it like so. <laughs> Ray, Ray Sherwin. Ray Sherwin. <laughs> His name is just like Ray Sherwin. Ray Sherwin. Doug Smith. Speaking of favorite people, one of my favorite writers himself, Farhud SM, wrote to us again, wrote, uh, what did he say? Listen, if Farhud spent the, <laughs> the amount of time he spends writing letters to us, becoming a patron for, you know. I know. Time is money, Farhud. <laughs> <laughs> so you're giving you're giving it away. Just give us, you know, a little contribution. And what is it? What does Farhud have to say? It's always he a good says, letter. Uh, what a ride I laughed I cried I lost three pounds <laughs> what an interesting cat this interview represents the essence of the Rook project and once again you've raised the bar it's really a shame that some team members ahem Captain Reza oh. have bigger and better things to do that's right welcome Savvy Roham you get the honorary title of Major Savvy Roham because the captain is on thin ice swaying on the ledge on the chopping block Oh. And he's referring to the oh. fact that uh, Captain Reza decided to take a Monday off to go on a romantic Valentine's oh, getaway. Romantic. How what dare you? What does a guy gotta do to take a day off? Who <laughs> this uh, fighting words? He's, yeah. you know, I'm actually considering firing uh, Reza after reading this letter. It's, uh, and he keeps ignoring me. Thank you, Fahoud. Okay, okay Fahoud, please You're write about Shaya. Shaya might cry if you don't write about him, so please uh, say something. Oh, but, please, uh, for the love of God. He's such. He's a great writer. He is. I love yeah. this fat hood. Yeah. He spells oh. his name wrong though. It's Fat Hood, I think. <laughs> he writes Fat Hood. Yeah. Cool. And then we have Atifa Tabish writing to us from Halifax, Nova Scotia, on the east coast of Canada. She says, "I'm a big fan of Mustafa Heravi and his artwork. The short movie It Was Five O'Clock was the best ever." I love this interview. I had no idea about the cheese making and the camel story. I feel more connected with him now. I love his crazy visions and edits. We need more cool artists like him, who not only cares about the art, he also cares about the people too. Beautifully said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a nice, nice, nice letter. That's lovely. And then we have Sadaf Dargohi wrote, What a character. Throughout the conversation, I was worried about him choking from laughing. <laughs> it was a very interesting interview. After Aravan Rezaï, this interview was very unexpected to hear what he's done. And I can't even guess what's coming up next in his life. Really. Nor, nor can he, by the sounds <laughs> of it. Yeah. Uh, as well, Mustafa Hiravi, by, by the way, if you didn't, that w- it really was one of my favorite oh, episodes as well. Amazing. If you didn't catch it, it was last Monday, it was the episode number 85 of Rook. Yes. I uh, would encourage you to check it out. It was very, very enjoyable. Yeah. What a character. Uh, as well, uh, last week on episode 86, we had pioneering Iranian-American food blogger Azita Hushiar on the show. So we have on Instagram, uh, username Samira Writes wrote to us saying, Absolutely thoughtful. Loved listening to Azita. She's always charming and informative. Great questions and commentary here. 
Thanks for creating this space for the Iranian diaspora and its cousins. Thank you. Thank you, Samira. And then, so on, uh, on that same episode, Gian brought up a saying that his uh, dear late father used to say that no one's ever heard of, by the way. It's uh, Hamas Karanot. Hamas Karanot. Hamas Karanot. So, yeah, we had a few people write about that specific uh, saying. We have a Abbas Marufi wrote, Hamas uh, Karanot sounds like a Hebrew saying, not Persian. <laughs> Yes, I don't I think my father could speak Hebrew, but <laughs> I'm, I'd be very impressed if that was a Hebrew <laughs> saying. I would appreciate it. And then we have Hissam Mubini wrote, Hamas Gharanat is, is Arabic that could have been used in Farsi too. It means fifth crane, which has something to do with the fifth sky, I believe. I think it's related to religious stories from Islam when Muhammad enters the fifth sky and he sees a lot of angels. I have no idea if that makes sense or not. Do not take my analysis seriously, as I'm not entirely sure. Hmm. Yeah. I think, actually, I, I spoke to my cousin who remembers my dad saying this. Uh-huh. And Shai, you had said that Hamas means one-fifth, but my cousin was saying it means five. Yeah. And so it's it actually is a celebratory. It's like it's like you give the money to the beggar, and the beggar says five. You know, like uh, make it five times that amount. Hamas you know? Oh yeah, actually yeah, uh, I, I was wrong. I think Homs is one fifth, and Hamas means fifth. Yeah, and I think Karanot is uh, is a plural for Kerun, which means Kerun is like it's like change, it's like nickel right. in Farsi. Yeah, so but Hamas. yeah, but based on what Hesam uh, says it's actually Hamas Karanat no. which is Crane? Crane. Is that, that's what he's saying or Hamas. it's something related Crane. to the fifth yeah. sky so yeah I don't know too much about Islamic stories so does is, is anybody know by the way oh, you keep saying Islam like not you don't want Islam? to say Islam is Islam or Islam, Islam. I don't know. I grew yeah, up in the, the West. I, I know. This Islam. is the uh, Iowa, Idaho. Where do you where were you born? Des Moines, Kentucky, Iowa. Iowa. It's an <laughs> Iowa girl coming up. And Islam, <laughs> the Iranians in Islam. It's Listen, like, Keon, you're working on the show. Oh, the Iowa Us Iranians girl. have a lot to say <laughs> here. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, thanks, uh, Hassan Mobini. I was hoping that there would be somebody who could unlock the... You know, who had the the golden key to this saying, Hamas yeah. Karanot, but uh, I, I do think that I want to use it in a celebratory form. So if somebody does, if next time Reza, Captain Reza, gets his film debuting at, uh, at Sundance, the film festival, I'll be like, Hamas Karanot. You know? yeah. All right, we'll add that to our dictionary of celebratory <laughs> yeah. words. Listen, I've created words before <laughs> and <laughs> and names. The captain, yes, yes. Is it acceptable to say Hamas instead of Hamas? Not to me. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> so also sounds like you're saying the name of a Palestinian political Shia. group. Uh, <laughs> <Hamas>. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, on that note, it's time for Letter of the Week. Oh. <laughs> all right. This week's Letter of the Week goes to a Japes. Fournier, oh. that's uh, on YouTube. Uh, I believe that's his real name. I don't know. I've never heard of a or Japes. Her, or her. Or her, yes, Japes. indeed. So Japes wrote to us saying, Oh my God, I'm so happy I found you, man. This is amazing. Been missing you for years. Love that you're still doing the great, thoughtful intro essays. Thank you so much. Nice. That's very sweet. Thank you, Japes. That's really fabulous. 
Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> has, re- has rediscovered you in a I, different form. I That's appreciate amazing. That. It's I very appreciate sweet. that. Well worth the letter of the week. Thank you. Thank you to everybody who's writing in. Info at rookmedia.com or on any of our platforms. Thank you, uh, Captain Breza, Groovy Shy, the fabulous Keon. See you Thursday. This is full time for Rook for today. I've been mentioning it, but I'll mention it again. Our website, rookmedia.com, R O Q E media.com, is where you can find all of our episodes you can see pictures of our fancy merchandise figure out how to support us see a list of all of our guests we've ever had rookmedia.com thanks to the amazing team who put this show together producer susan ponta the artist thoughtful nagin the fabulous keon savvy roham aray merdad master muhammad chef Haas, captain reza and groovy shaya thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content please subscribe if you've not done so already and you can find me on Instagram at Giangomeshi. In the meantime, have a good start to your week. And as ever, Mizunbashi. Bashi.